0: Hello, 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 happy Saturday. I am very excited to be here with you for another episode of Here to Queer, and I'm excited to be in conversation with some of your questions today. I put out a call on Instagram and Twitter ahead of time because I know this is a new app and a lot of people Uh, don't have it and don't listen live and I want to engage with all of you wherever you are and I just want to say first how exciting I was reading through many of your questions I just thought how beautiful that so many of us have grown up in communities where we thought we were totally alone and where it was really hard to Imagine a future and the possibility of being ourselves and being connected with other people in deep and meaningful ways and being truly seen and feeling loved in that. And I think that these kinds of spaces um, allow for and just all the different stories we get to hear now uh, allow for a sense of hope that many of us really longed for. Uh, growing up. And so it just feels like I, I do not for one second take for granted what a gift it is to get to be in conversation with you all and to just get to be here uh, in the world with you all where we now know we, are, uh, we aren't alone. And gosh, I just, I think the queer community is so beautiful and uh, human beings are so beautiful and life is such a gift and i'm just feeling really grateful today i am in brooklyn new york with my two cats prince and toby and there is a winter storm raging outside which is also bringing me to life because i love weather i love every single season and so this is a fun setting to get to interact with some of the questions you sent I am going to just dive in because there's, these are wide-ranging and a lot of fun, and I think they'll get into some uh, deeper themes that we can discuss probably in whole entire episodes in the future. So thank you for uh, opening yourselves up and sending them along. The first one is about my experience writing Out Love, which many of you have read and reached out about. And this one asks, this person asks the question, what is the biggest misconception you've encountered about your experience writing your memoir? And for the most part, I feel like people have responded very positively. One of the things that's been interesting about uh, doing work around Pray Away, uh, the, the documentary on Netflix that I was a part of, About conversion therapy and then also releasing my memoir out love one of the interesting things is that by and large there's just an overwhelming sense from people that of encouragement uh that that they feel like these these stories are are a gift and in like sort of a balm to them and really healing and so I really hold on to that because there's also anytime you do work publicly on the internet there's going to be a small minority of people from a range of different perspectives that uh, get a little a little r- ruffled by uh, one one thing or another and I found that that happened from some you know more conservative people uh, some Christians some uh, more some some uh, people working in activist spaces and and so I'll address a couple different ones um, I I was surprised that um, some people that I spent a lot of time you know particularly in my book I talk about Ricky Chalette, the Executive Director of Living Hope Ministries in Arlington, Texas, which is the conversion therapy program I was a part of for uh, almost 10 years. And I spent years writing out love and I was involved in a lot of therapy while I wrote it and doing a whole lot of spiritual and emotional work around what it meant to write about him and uh, some members of my family and wanting to really honor their humanity and just how complex it is to be a human being and how, um, how hard people tend to try. Most people are trying really hard to be a source of love and light in the world. And, and then we still hurt each other. And there are a lot of reasons for that, but it's usually not that somebody's bad. And so I was, I wanted to to really honor the complexity of, of those individuals and their humanity and also speak honestly about the harm they cause to me and to countless other people especially in, in Ricky's case uh, at, at least hundreds of people I, I just know so many who were deeply harmed by conversion therapy and so um, I they were showing up in my dreams for years and I was just dealing with it so much consciously and subconsciously and and then once it came out uh, it was it was hard Uh, It was expected and um, not entirely surprising, but also hard to hear from people from that community who just kind of slandered my character and and said that I was attacking um, or being divisive or ungrateful. And I, it's extra hard sometimes when you really gear up and prepare to do a lot of hard emotional work to... And tell something truthfully, and then for that to just be completely dismissed. And there's an interesting thing that happens in a lot of Christian communities where anytime you say something that people don't really like, they'll say that you're divisive. And I think what that just means is that there are certain narratives that they've been really comfortable with for a long time and that they're now uncomfortable <laughs> because that narrative has been called into question and complicated by other people's stories and so i i wish that that some of those people would really just sit with their own discomfort instead of making up stories about people, you know, like me or my friends in order to uh sort of ease their own discomfort and I know that's really hard, and I know uh, it's sometimes easier to just, like, remove the cognitive dissonance by deciding that somebody else is bad, and also um, that is going to affect the ways that we continue to show up in our day-to-day lives, because there are currently people that are in their circles who are a lot like me, and um, if they sort of tell that story about me, then they're also, by extension, uh, probably... Believing those stories about other people, so I guess I wish that more people could assume the best about uh, my in- intentions and and my character, even if they uh, feel uncomfortable with things that I've I've said. Um, and I, I I I hope for more curiosity in our conversations publicly, uh, where when something bothers us, that we might say, "Huh, what's that about?" And I, I want to better understand what's going on here. I want to look more into this and uh, to not just shut down. So that's one thing. Another thing was uh, people uh, often assume that you uh, do something like write a book for fame or to make a lot of money. And so I would sometimes have people on like Instagram Live saying, like, are you going to donate all the money you make from your book to – you know, such and such cause. And uh, I was like, okay, so I've, I've so far only lost money on this book. Most uh, writers, especially queer writers, uh, a lot of BIPOC folks doing public work are not making money um, off of the work that they do. It's, it's truly labors of love uh, to, to, to educate and to nourish and uplift and, and create a sense of hope and possibility for other people. So I currently work in a restaurant to pay my bills and to uh, support my cats and their their little lifestyles. <laughs> and so, um, so yeah, I'm doing this after a late shift last night, where I got home at 12:30 or one, and that is not necessarily the life of fame and riches. And that's okay. I would choose this life. I have chosen this life, and I would choose it again a million times over. And I want people to understand, I guess, again, the intentions behind the work that me and so many other people I know are doing is uh, for love and not uh, for for fame. So yeah, in general, I would say I would love more curiosity and more assuming the best about people's intentions and to um, to really question our own discomforts more than Uh, sort of lashing out at other people and attacking their character but again for the most part that has been minimal for the most part people have been so kind and so just warm and grateful and that gives me a lot of hope for uh, our conversations another question asks so one of you asked what does hope look like for you after so much disillusionment? That's a really interesting question and beautiful. I, you know, growing up, I think it's interesting how the stories we hear about the world are the whole world to us at that point. And so I only heard my understanding of how I ended up in a, a living, breathing body that was alive uh, was sort of the, the, the Christian narrative about, um, about God and, and heaven and hell. And <laughs> the purpose was to sort of save souls for the afterlife. And so hope for me looked like um, getting closer to achieving redemption um, in, on those terms and helping other people also find redemption on those terms that were very much, again, related to sin and the afterlife and saving souls. And so I had hope in that sort of narrative for a long time. And and then I my worldview expanded and I came to see that particular story in a broader context of a lot of different ways that we go about understanding what it means to be a human being in the world and now I would say I have a lot more room for mystery. I am still a very spiritual person. I still find a lot, I draw a lot of strength from uh, Christianity and especially just the sort of the practices of um, reflecting on what it means to grow in love for other people, uh, what it means to work for uh, more justice and more peace and I'm much more concerned about how that happens in the real world of, of, of human beings who are here and less about what might be going on outside of the visible world because that's just so unknowable and so for me I now find hope in the possibility that we can make life more bearable and even beautiful For other people who are currently suffering, I've experienced that myself and it is, it's just transformational. Um, And the idea that there are people right now who would rather not be alive and who feel like maybe the world would be better off without them, that, that they could come to a place of seeing their belovedness and seeing what a gift they are and how beautiful they are and and how much is possible in terms of uh, love and connection and healing. And and I find a lot of hope in getting to be a part of those kinds of movements. It's what gets me out of bed in the day. It's what drives my decision-making around how I order my life. And I I was watching a movie the other day, which I will – Uh, get to it a little bit with another question. But um, actually, I'm going to wait and get to that with the other question. So hang in there. But I find a lot of hope in uh, alleviating suffering to the extent that it's possible. And seeing um, more and more people who do that in such beautiful ways, many of whom I'll get to chat with on this podcast. And um, yeah, the possibility that we can always grow and find more healing and be a part of more beauty is just really exciting to me. So that is one answer. There are many others. But I'm going to move on to your next question because you asked a whole lot of really good ones. Um, and the next question here I have on my list is how do you maintain strength in unequal systems that only seem to want more inequality? That is a big question. And it's it just makes me really sad that the person who asked that is um is probably struggling right now, and it's sad to me that uh those who uphold the systems don't don't understand and see um, these human stories. and so I just want to say thank you uh, for asking, thank you for reaching out. To me, so much of the strength that I have found, especially when I'm sort of like buried under the weight of those kinds of systems is in finding a couple other people who are also struggling in that inequality, um, especially like the the same kind of like micro level of inequality because there's so much just in society, uh, but also the ways it plays out in our day-to-day lives in a specific community are, are like that's what we – feel so deeply in our bodies in a given day. So when I think about, uh, at living hope, when I felt that as a younger person in, uh, at Exodus and conversion therapy, finding a couple other people who also seem to be maybe having a hard time and asking similar questions and just beginning to, to say like, Hey, is, is this right? Are we, I think, I think something's off here because I think you're awesome and I think it's really messed up that you are, are reeling and, and in so much self-loathing because you deserve better than that because you're actually really beautiful and then being able to look at me and be like, hey, wait, that's what I thought about you and you begin to have those conversations where you're like, me too, me too, me too. And I found that at Wheaton College when I was uh, working at an evangelical institution that was largely white and very, uh, focused on sort of like, you know, um, male dominance and, um, definitely, uh, heterosexual dominance (laughs) for lack of a better word. And I, I just found a couple other professors. I, I would kind of ask students like, Hey, who are the, who are the safe people in your life here? Like, who can you go to when you know, you've got like, a real struggle, a real challenge that you know are just going to be like, hey, shut the door. Like, you are beautiful. You're okay. You're going to get through this. And so when they kind of told me about who those safe people were, I also made it a point to connect with those people more. And they weren't queer. Um, They were... uh, They were... One was a the first black woman to receive tenure at Wheaton College, and she were, was a political scientist, Larisha Hawkins. Another was my uh, dear, dear best friend, Christine Fulch, who is an anthropologist, and um, her parents were immigrants from Cuba, and she, uh, just uh, growing up as a, a young bilingual woman in sort of a working class family and very white evangelical spaces had such uh interesting political analysis and also so much empathy and uh, finding other people like that who for one reason or another weren't the system wasn't set up for them to thrive for us to thrive being able to find joy find support from each other but also so much of it it wasn't just getting together and talking about what was hard like we would regularly just have dinners and celebration and make it a point to, to laugh together and to feel that sense of like, oh, I can exhale here. I'm safe here. I don't have to carry around this tension in my body of, of that feeling of being watched and being policed. I just get to, to feel those moments of human joy and tenderness and, and that finding those little tiny pockets will truly save your life in, in the kinds of systems you're talking about. Um, and if you, if you can't find other people who are around you, who are, uh, might seem safe for you, you know, beginning to, to look online, there are so many amazing communities online now, which can eventually translate to uh, actual human physical relationships as well. And, um, and reading stories of people you resonate with, like all of that, really is, sustains us and gives us a sense of, of strength and, and hope and a rootedness that uh, we can't have when we feel totally alone. So yeah, reach out, um, find a couple safe people, and begin to build those little relationships that are most likely going to transform your life. Uh, the next question that I wanted to get to... That somebody asks is, what's the best movie you've seen this year? I don't know what the best movie I've seen this year is, but I can tell you the most moving, powerful, just completely wrenching movie that I've seen in a long time. Uh, I watched recently a documentary called Attica, and it's about the Attica prison uprising also known as the Attica prison massacre uh, in nineteen seventy one and it, it, oh my gosh it was it was just so i I need every single one of you to go watch this documentary. go find this wherever you get movies and watch this documentary. These men um were able to get control of the and they they had a few hostages. They didn't have any guns, uh, but they had a few guards that they were holding as hostage to begin to to negotiate with uh, political leaders and uh, guards in the and, and leaders in the prison for uh, just more humane treatment. They were they would regularly routinely be beaten for absolutely no reason. They were given. Uh, just no food. I think, I remember them saying, I think it was like 21 cents a meal was like the budget that was allotted for, for feeding each of them. And, um, that is obviously not something that you could get any nourishing food on. And, and there was this part where one of the, one of the, the men who survived to tell the story, uh, talked about how when they had sort of like taken control of the prison they were all outside in the courtyard, and they were um they they were having like community picnics, and there were different guys who sort of like they kind of elected leaders uh, from the community to be the ones who like led negotiations with political leaders. They uh, some of the guys had served in Vietnam. And we're doing medical work, sort of like uh, mending wounds that had happened in the in the fight. And uh, various guys were doing the cooking or creating places for people to use the restroom. And I remember one of the one of the men that they were interviewing, who had been a former inmate, saying that on the first night they were out there, they were outside camping, and um, one of the guys. Uh, that that was beside him was just, just truly like overwhelmed and in awe. And he was like, what's going on? What's, what's this about? And he said, this is the first time I've seen the nights. He said, this is the first time I've seen the night sky in over 22 years. It was, it was the first time he had seen, stars and the moon in 22 years. And I just, it just completely stopped my heart. And, and all these men were asking for was to be treated like human beings. There's this drum beat throughout the whole movie. That's like, treat us like human beings, just acknowledge our dignity because we are human beings and please stop treating us like animals. And and it was, it, was, it was so profound. And then um, toward the end of the film, you see how these negotiations eventually go down and uh, police officers invade and the National Guard was brought in. And first it starts with, with gassing the prisoners and then it turns into something much more horrific and absolutely vile. And, uh, they, the police start shooting, um, inmates point blank, uh, and you just see these bodies where each eyeball has been shot out and they, they're just, um, you know, they, they go on sort of a a streak of terrorism. And again, these men were unarmed. And so this was unnecessary completely. And they had been peacefully negotiating for four days. And then they, they make all of them get naked and take their clothes off and put their hands on their head and begin raping them and humiliating them and making them do uh, all kinds of just completely abusive, humiliating things. And you just see how – you see I, – I, I just – I. I couldn't believe that I hadn't heard about this growing up. I couldn't believe that this wasn't something that was regularly taught in throughout the course of my education. And even, you know, in more progressive spaces now, I I just hadn't, I hadn't heard about this happening and it is, it is, it's just completely, it's completely gutting. It's heart wrenching. And, and this was all in response to, to these men saying, just treat us like human beings. Just please see our dignity. And I, I just need every single one of you to watch it. Um, it's called Attica, about the Attica prison uprising. And I promise you, you will never forget it. And it will put a lot of current conversations that we're having around Black Lives Matter and police brutality and movements for prison abolition, it will really uh, illuminate a lot of those conversations and give more just like visual context for, for, for us to understand why that's so important and uh, what what these uh, cries for, for change are really about. So yes, Attica, the most moving film I've seen in as long as I can remember. Another question we have here is how to build community with LGBTQ folks in a small conservative town, especially when you can't or don't want to move to a big city. Gosh, I just feel so much compassion uh, for the person who asked this question. And I, I, I don't know if you're, um, if you're open about your own experience or if you're, if it's not safe for you to do so, so it's so hard to speak to your particular situation, because you know, if you're out and you're open, you can start building the community that uh, is obviously so needed in your in your town by hosting meetups and by, you know, going to the library and asking for a book club or or starting a book club or reading. That might center more LGBTQ stories. You can talk to local um, faith communities who are wherever they are in their openness to hearing from stories uh, like like LGBTQ folks um, working within that. And so, um, but it's very possible that it's not safe for you to 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 tell to talk about this part of yourself. In which case I would say the internet is going to be your best friend right now, because you can at least connect with people in, in sort of safe ways in other places. And I bet you would be surprised by how that can begin to expand and change your real life community. You know, that's how I, growing up, I grew up in a place called Tomball, Texas, outside of Houston, where there were like mainly just cows and then like less than a thousand other people. And then even growing up uh, and spending a lot of time in a a bigger city like Dallas, Texas, I, I still didn't, I didn't have access to other people like me in those spaces, but I did begin to build those relationships online. And eventually, you know, we would all meet up at a conference once a year and we would be on group texts or message boards uh, in the time in between. And then Through friends of friends, you do start meeting people who are closer to you. So maybe it will be an hour away from you. But it's still, again, this is like if you, if it's not safe for you to be out where you are, those kinds of relationships can really be lifelines. So um, yeah, I hope that's helpful. It's really, it's hard to speak to this situation, but I think there are ways of making incremental, like incremental, taking incremental steps toward the abundant community deserve that are possible and i am a big fan of incremental change another question here is how to build your faith after coming out i think this looks really different for everybody i found that there is a lot so a lot of people i know came out uh from conservative religious backgrounds and there's a, a sense in which we have a, a lot of solidarity and understanding based on our shared past. And there's a lot of bonding that can go on around understanding where, we've, where we come from and also the, the specific struggles and questions we're asking because of that shared experience. And then as we begin to explore, to understand more of ourselves and explore more of, of what we need, And what's possible for us, we start kind of moving in different directions. So I know quite a few people who um, have gone into more like uh, mainline progressive sort of like Christian spaces. And their faith looks a lot different now than it did when they were in conservative evangelical spaces. But again, evangelicalism is just like one tiny part of the whole wide world. It's not the tent is much wider than evangelicals would have you believe. And so there are a lot of other ways to um, practice, practice your faith and to to grow in in love and kindness uh, that aren't in fundamentalist spaces. And then some people find just more broad um, spiritual communities, whether that's uh, getting more into meditation and integrating some, you know, christian spirituality with buddhist thinking and um some people begin to find it in uh various like recovery type groups and doing work around their trauma and and finding other places of healing i think you know again there's not going to be one specific path but i would say begin to listen to yourself and what what makes you healthier like what helps you to be a healthier than you were yesterday or last week and lean into those things. For me, there has been a lot of, um, reading authors like Barbara Brown Taylor, who uh, is a former Episcopal priest who uh, has written a book called, "An all famous, she left her job as a priest because she, she felt like God, she, she found God more outside of the church than inside of it. And, um, she also has a beautiful book called Learning to Walk in the Dark. I would say definitely start with Barbara Ron Taylor if, if you're early and wrestling with some of these questions because it's, she's just so, so wise and, and it's so, such a balm, uh, to, to anxious souls like, like many of us. And, um, and know that you're okay. Like know that you, some of these things can feel so existential because it's like the worldview that holds our whole lives together held our whole lives together begins to crumble. But I think you'll find that when that sort of house crumbles, you then get to look up and see the sky and you begin to look around and say, "Oh wow, I hadn't seen the the view out here, and there's there's all these just tall, gorgeous trees that have been growing for hundreds of years. Or maybe there's a garden, or maybe there's a river or the ocean, and yeah, it was it was scary when the house came crumbling down, but but look at this view you have now that you had no idea was out there, and so when you feel overwhelmed by the anxiety of of that sort of of the crumbling, uh, know that you're you're about to to walk into something so much more expansive, and your sense of possibility will blow wide open and and your capacity for joy will skyrocket. And that there's a lot more uh, love and tenderness and beauty out there than you previously believed. There are several more questions, so we might have to do this again, but um, since I was just talking about Barbara Brown Taylor, I will end with this question that I love that is in a Barbara Brown Taylor book where she she asks, "What's saving your life right now?" And it can be something big. It can be something small. Um, but I love that question. And oh, hello, Toby! These little guys are always saving my life. But I think one thing. One thing that's saving my life is, you know, I I I grew up feeling so scared. I I didn't I wasn't even remotely in touch with with what I might need because I was exclusively concerned with what other people around me wanted and needed from me. And I was always just trying to interpret that and be that for them. And the work I've done in therapy over the years of beginning to get in touch with with who I am and with my own needs and 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 what I what I need to be able to thrive. Has allowed me to turn down the volume on other people's uh, wishes for me or or sometimes demands, and and turn up the volume on what helps, what brings me to life. And I think that's important, not just because like oh for my own happiness, but also because understanding what we need to be able to thrive and to be healthy is 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 going to be. Crucial to us being able to to love other people, to show up with love and kindness to the people in our lives, uh, to show up with more love and kindness in um and un- unequal systems, uh, and to to approach our communities with more tenderness and more capacity for love and kindness. And so, gosh, it's it's saving my life to be able to know that I can truly listen to to what I, what I need and to, um, to meet those needs and that to know that I'm okay. And to know that I'm, I'm, uh, I'm good. I'm good enough. And that I don't have to spend my whole life striving, uh, to please other people, to, I know that I'm okay, but I'm okay just because I have done the work to create that sort of uh, safe structure for myself. And I know that might sound like a lot of like psycho babble, you know, but in a given day, that means that I went from being hyper, hyper anxious all the time to having a real sense of peace and, and being able to be so much more present to my, my days and my body and to have more patience for other people, because I can genuinely see them because when I look at them, I'm not just seeing my own anxieties and hearing my own narratives. I'm hearing them. And so I'm just, I'm feeling so thankful for, for all the people who write books about how to, uh, how to, work through our baggage and and be emotionally healthier. I'm thankful for a for great therapist. I'm thankful for great friends who ask good questions and who provide places of, um, of just warmth and, and safety and kindness and tenderness. My friends have always been saving my life. I think I, I talk about this a lot, but I love how the queer community especially just crushes chosen family. And I love how I have the of my life who are are just all in like the answer's yes before they even all in for support and they're all in for um adventures and for 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 long stories and lots of laughter and that I just know they're in my corner. There's nothing like knowing You've got people in your corner who are just rooting for you and cheering for you and ready to give you big hugs on the other side of whatever hard you're going through. Um, And then getting outside has always saved my life. I just love, I love the world. I love every season. I love riding my bike. I love walking. I love smelling the fresh air. I love getting to go to the ocean here in New York. I love the snowstorm that's just like whirling outside my window. I feel like it is such a gift to be alive. I have no, idea. it feels so enormous and like unfathomable that we are living, breathing human beings alive in this world right now. And I am so thankful that I get to show up to it every single day. And I, I feel so much hope and so much possibility about all the connections that I might form in the years to come and all the different movements I get to be a part of and all the different ways that I might get to, to be a, a part of healing and justice in this world and so, um I'm feeling really <laughs> thankful for a, a lot of hard work that I've done from a lot of grace that I've received from other people to make that possible. All right, there were quite a few questions I didn't get to, so we will definitely do this again, but I just want to thank each of you for uh, for for sharing and for uh, being you and for speaking out. and I, I want you to know how much life I find from these communities we've been able to build online because I think, like I said, they, uh, they give us the sense that we're not alone. They remind us that we're not alone. And then they also create possibilities for the kinds of relationships I've been talking about throughout this, about uh, the ones that really save our lives. So thanks for being a part of that. I hope you have a wonderful Saturday and I look forward to chatting with you all soon.